On behalf of the Cornet Chicago Programs Committee, thank you for joining us today and throughout the year. Glad you all are having amazing conversations. Well, this year we've been tasked with a lot. We've, asked to, we've been asked to be better predictors uh, in lieu of a black swan event. That's difficult, right? So we pulled someone in for December to help us plan better for 2023, someone that can help us predict the future. That's what he promised me. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Alex Kastrunas. All right, how are you all doing today? Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you Cornet Global and the Chicago chapter Cornet. Thank you uh, Ernst Young and Cressa and everyone else that was involved in putting this on and that I collaborated with. Um, it's great to see everybody here. I even have a friend here, right here, Ryan Ferran, who I've known. It's my oldest friend that I still keep in touch with and been good friends with. I've known him since third grade. So very excited to be here today. And uh, yeah, let's, let's just dive right in. So again, I'm Alex Kastrunas. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Why of AI. It's an AI strategy consulting and training company that helps organizations better understand and apply responsible AI. I'm also an adjunct professor at uh, Northwestern Kellogg where I teach artificial intelligence and machine learning as part of their new MBAI program, which is sort of an MBA program that's really focused on data analytics and technology to, uh, you know, in, in our changing world, right? Um, I wrote a book called AI for People in Business, published by O'Reilly Media as well, and I'm a former IndyCar engineer, race strategist, and data scientist. So quick question, just really briefly, um, would anybody like to offer up what some of the biggest challenges you face today in corporate real estate? Just raise your hand, just take a few if anybody's willing to throw something out there. Yes? Occupancy planning. Occupancy planning, okay. Another, did I see another hand? Anyone? Okay. Okay. Uh, material costs. Material costs. Very good. Okay. Well, um, here are some of the biggest challenges that I've personally faced throughout my career. Um, and some of these might resonate with you as well. Maybe these are some things that you're facing. And in fact, if you know, down at the bottom, I know in corporate real estate, uh, everything has to do with the workplace, right? Or most things have to do with the workplace in terms of whether it's the experience or something around usage or flexibility or all the specs like size and cost, um, or maybe even lease, like flexible leases or whatever the case may be there. And when you face these kinds of challenges, um, they can have kind of not the best results, right? Maybe, maybe you feel like you're losing uh, prospective customers or employees to the competition, um, or you're, you know, you're having a hard time convincing others that you're the right vendor or service provider to go with because your offerings aren't truly differentiated enough or it's hard to convince them of your particular value prop. Um, or even with existing customers and employees, maybe you sometimes have them leave when you don't want them to, um, and so on and so forth. You know, especially too when, you know, I know a lot of times um, when you're trying to give your customers or employees or whoever or stakeholders advice or make recommendations, sometimes people aren't always as receptive to what you're saying or unwilling to take certain risks and so on, right? Um, and so those are kinds of issues that we've all faced at one time or another, probably faced to some extent today. Um, and imagine for a second what, imagine if these problems were solved. What does that world look like? And I know uh, it can be hard to imagine a world where you don't face these kinds of challenges. Although, let me tell you uh, about how I once faced many similar challenges like this and then overcame them in uh, racing. So by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to the Indianapolis 500? Nice, okay, we've got a, a, a good crowd here for that. Uh, how would you describe it? Just shout something out there. Lit, yeah, there you go. Lit, loud, crazy, exciting. Very, very accurate uh, descriptions indeed. Um, so let me tell you a little story. Uh, unfortunately, the video didn't load here, but hopefully, there it is, okay. Um, let me tell you a quick story. 
When I was 16 years old, I was a junior in high school. And um, I had a friend that had been trying to get me to go to the Indy 500 for years, and I honestly had no interest in it whatsoever. Uh, but finally, one year, he convinced me to go. We had a, uh, a dance that weekend uh, at our high school, and I didn't really have a date, and I wasn't such a great dancer anyway, so I finally said, okay, I'm gonna go to this race. And uh, this is what I saw. So hopefully this thing loads up for us. Hold on one second. That's all right. I can show it. Oh, okay. We're getting there. Allinger Jr. has there we the go. lead. One more turn to go. Here they come. Coming to the finish line. Bob Jenkins, who's uh, Well, unfortunately, we weren't able to show that video, but what it would have shown is the closest Indianapolis 500 in history. Um, where this car, Allinster Jr., had beat Scott Goodyear by only four hundredths of a second. And it is literally like photo finish. So imagine going 500 miles. It's the same distance as going from Indianapolis, or sorry, from Chicago to Toronto, only after 500 miles to come within four one hundredths of a second of your competitor. And in fact, the unofficial difference was three hundredths of a second. Um, it was also one of the coldest races uh, ever in history of the Indianapolis 500, which created really bad conditions and resulted in a bunch of crashes. And even the pole sitter, the guy that uh, qualified on pole position, crashed on the parade lap before the race even started. But I was so blown away by the speed, the sounds, the smell, some of the things you all mentioned here today, and the pure competition that I decided that this is what I was going to do for a living. I was going to become an IndyCar engineer and race strategist for a living. And sure enough, um, after a lot of hard work and perseverance, I finally got my chance. Um, not only that, my very first job in racing was actually working for Al Hunter Jr. himself, the guy in the upper left corner. So that's the guy that won the Indianapolis 500 that I saw when I was 16 that kind of sparked my uh, life mission to become an engineer in racing. And not only that, um, him and this guy, Alan Mertens, who designed the Indy car that won that same Indy 500 that I was trying to show you in the video, um, him and Alan Hunter Jr. started a new company to build, design, and manufacture and sell a LeMas-style uh, LeMas uh, race car. And so they brought me on as Alan's assistant engineer, where I co-designed the car that you see here. And we were off and running selling these cars. And I also ran the uh, the the team, the factory's uh, racing team. At the same time, I was also working on finishing up my master's degree in mathematics, and I actually wrote my master's degree on how do you leverage AI and machine learning to optimize IndyCar suspensions. And I did the master's, defended it, and I wound up getting um, the degree awarded with distinction for this master's degree, or for that thesis. And at that same time, I was still determined to make my life goal of working in IndyCar racing a reality. Um, so I went to as many races as I could over a couple of years. And I was handing out resumes, paper resumes, to literally anyone that would take them. And at that time, there was no software. You couldn't just like submit it on Indeed.com or somewhere like that, right? I had to literally print out resumes, go everywhere, hand them to anyone that would take them. I'm pretty sure most of them wound up in the trash. And I probably gave a bunch to like the team chef as well instead of the team manager because he was probably the only person that would talk to me. And then one day I get a call from this guy that you see here on the screen. His name's Chris, who's an IndyCar team manager. And the next racing season was about to start and Chris was in a bit of a pickle. He needed an engineer and he needed one quickly because the racing season was about to start and they needed to go do a test in Miami, Florida in an upcoming week. And they need, he needed a new engineer to start on that Monday right before that test. But the only problem was I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. And I was a nobody. No one knew who I was whatsoever. I wasn't really all that qualified. I didn't have that much experience. And at the end of the day, Chris was really trying to do everything he possibly could to hire anyone else but me. But he was struggling to find somebody that close to the season starting. And he needed somebody to be there in a Monday that was coming up. Uh, very shortly to get to that Miami test that I mentioned before the race season started. So I talked to Chris on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock. I managed to convince him to give me a shot. And he told me to show up in Indianapolis that following Monday morning. So three days later, this is at four o'clock on a Friday. I had no contract whatsoever. 
And I was basing this entire thing on a phone call alone, right? Living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So what did I do? The smart thing to do, right? Go, go find your boss at 4.45 p.m. on a Friday. Quit with zero notice whatsoever. Go home, pack up whatever you possibly can that you could throw in your truck, because I did have a pickup truck at the time. Hop in the truck, and then uh, uproot your entire life and drive 1,300 miles to Indianapolis, arrive Sunday evening, so that you could start work at Monday morning at 9 a.m. And so that's what I did. And that's me on literally my first day ever in my 10-year IndyCar career, sitting in a car. We had just gotten this Lola chassis. So some of you might be, I don't know who are fans and know a lot about racing in here, but we had just gotten this brand new Lola chassis. The team had been using Raynard chassis before. And the thing came totally stripped and bare. Had no electronics, no engine, no transmission, no suspension, nothing. But we still had to be in Miami in two days. So here I am trying to learn about all the things I need to install. There's like 80 to 90 sensors on these cars that measure everything from temperature, pressure, forces, displacements, angles, wind speed, you name it. And so, and there's a lot of electronics that go with that as well. So here I am trying to figure this all out uh, in over my head completely. And everybody also was, oh, and you have to calibrate all these sensors as well. So install them and calibrate them. And everybody's also super excited because we just signed Justin Wilson, who some of you may know of. Uh, he had just come over to IndyCar Racing from Formula One. So this is a huge deal. We get this Formula One big guy name. I'm on the car there. I'm building his car to be in, in Miami. Third day on the job, I'm in Miami testing our brand new Lola chassis with Justin Wilson. That's not our car, but... I like the picture because it says Homestead. That was the track we were at. And at this point, my 10-year career in IndyCar racing had officially begun. Now, um, the goal in racing is to get to the finish line first. And a lot of people assume that that's all about the driver. You know, uh, the vast majority, I would say. But it's just not the case. And it's just not the case just like it's not in corporate real estate, right? It's not all about just one person or one thing. It's usually about team effort or certain things that you do that give you some sort of competitive advantage, right? And in racing, the thing that you're shooting for really is ideally you have the best driver, the fastest car setup, and the smartest race strategy. We'll dive into what those things mean here shortly. Uh, but it rarely turns out that you have all three of those things at once. So the question becomes, how do you win races if you don't have all, any of these things or all of these things simultaneously? And one thing I noticed right away in racing is just how much data there was. I mean, this is like, you know, the real, the outside of racing world really wasn't as data focused at that time. People were, the, the term data scientist didn't exist. I mean, people were doing some analytics and statistical, like some simple stuff, but like the stuff we're doing today wasn't really a thing. But in racing, everyone was using data. I mean, and if you look at the bottom of the slide there, I mean, the amount of data we had was just massive. We had like 80 to 90 sensors in the car, like I mentioned. There was telemetry data, so we were sending data over the airwaves via either RF or global satellite uplink. We had time and scoring data, driver feedback data, like qualitative data, where the driver saying, oh yeah, I'm driving the car and it doesn't feel good in this turn, but it's okay over here. So you're trying to turn that into insights. Simulation data and then testing data. Um, because you were also able to do track testing or go to the wind tunnel or do uh, suspension testing at a, at a thing called um, a shaker rig, a seven-post shaker rig. And despite, um, despite the fact that it, there was so much data and the culture was really a, driven around data too, I mean, even the driver always wanted to sit with me and look at the data with me and try and figure out how to go faster. Even then, it didn't mean that everyone used the data all the time or knew how to use it in the best possible way. But why is data so important? Why do we even talk about data? Well, data, as you can see here, data encodes knowledge, patterns, correlations, relationships, statistical distributions, and much more. And it turns out that all of these things that data encodes is super, super useful stuff for a lot of different things. And at the end of the day, winning is all about the data and what you do with it. And the key here is it's not just the data. A lot of times people talk about the data, right? But analytics is what you do with it. You have to turn data into something useful, into whether it's actionable insights or something else that we'll talk about. And that's really um, the most important thing. So real quick, by show of hands, we'll just do a quick poll, hand poll. 
Um, what type of analytics does your organization mostly leverage today, would you say? Is it, how many are you mostly using like spreadsheets, things like that for, for any sort of data analytics? Okay. Yep. Custom dashboards or BI tools? Okay. Decent amount there. Statistical analysis, getting into more statistical stuff, modeling, things like that. I see some nodding heads. Uh, experimentation, anybody doing like A-B testing or multivariate testing? Nope, no worries. And then finally, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Is anybody's organization, excuse me, current, currently doing any of that stuff? Okay, well, you're in the right place then. <laughs> um, so the analytics that I just talked about show kind of a progression in analytics what I would call analytics maturity and sophistication. And you know, you don't have to be doing all of it, all of these things. And just like most things, um, things can be like a crawl, walk, run approach, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, maybe you start with some of the, the more uh, traditional analytics, coming up with KPIs and different kinds of metrics. Um, if you follow this diagram, you can see from the top, it starts with your data foundation. What data do you have? Uh, whether you have it today or you know you want to get it tomorrow, right? It's all about building up that data foundation. And then sort of following the black arrows clockwise around this maturity diagram, which I created and introduced in my book, AI for People in Business, you um, essentially increase in sophistication. So, you know, again, the analytics and, and statistical stuff, a lot of that's kind of your Excel spreadsheet type stuff and your BI dashboards and so on, and then working your way up through modeling and experimentation, and then finally to the more advanced analytics stuff um, that is like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And just real quick, so everybody knows what I mean when I say artificial intelligence and machine learning, when we think of intelligence um, like human intelligence, intelligence basically you can think of it as meaning um, learning and understanding and then using that learning and understanding to do things, whether it's carry out your tasks every day at work or um, do homework if you're in school or get your kids to school or whatever it is, right? It's all like you learn things, you understand those things, you build common sense in a world model and this thing we call human level intelligence and then you use it to do things. So artificial intelligence is a natural extension of that to just say, Artificial intelligence is simply intelligence exhibited by machines. So if a machine can learn and then kind of understand what it learns and then do something like make a prediction, detect a spam coming into your inbox, detect a cancerous tumor in your lungs from a x-ray scan or something like that, then that is artificial intelligence. And when we talk about the learning part of intelligence, that's what machine learning is all about. That's just how machines can learn how to build these sort of models and understanding from some sort of data, usually in some industry or domain. But either way, you know, everyone should be working towards advancing their analytics capabilities and competencies, sort of working your way up this thing. Again, it's totally fine if it's a crawl, walk, run approach. Uh, but ultimately, by doing so, this helps you create more uh, data-driven benefits and competitive advantage. And generally, if you, as you work further and further up that level of sophistication and maturity, you also start to be able to do things you weren't able to do before, right? When you're doing sort of your more traditional analytics and your sort of spreadsheet stuff or dashboards, a lot of that is very rearward facing, right? You're looking at historic data, you're being more reactive to things and not so much proactive. But as you move further up that maturity diagram, you start to be able to be more proactive, more predictive. You start to be able to automate certain things. You can augment things, which means, you know, automate certain like very rote, tedious processes and things that you do within your organization so that the people that work in the organization can focus more on the things they do best and the value add type stuff. And it results in happier employees, happier employers because it's a win-win all around, things like that. But you can start to even optimize things, like truly optimize them. So they're, they're your shipping or your order man, ordering management or inventory management or you name it, whatever it is. Some of the things you guys said earlier. So there's all these sort of things that you, all of a sudden you've unlocked uh, that you're able to do as you move forward. Now going back to racing, remember I said the best driver, the fastest car setup or the smartest race strategy. Let's talk about that for a second. So the car setup, 
Um, there's not much you could do about the driver's level of talent, right? But what you can do is a team has a, a set of engineers, a group of engineers, and those engineers have to constantly try and figure out how to tweak the car and set up the, all these configurations. There's literally an infinite number of configurations that these cars have. You can change aerodynamic settings, you can change suspension settings, tires, um, you name it, differential settings, weight balance, weight distribution, um, and the list goes on and on. So it's truly an infinite combination. It's very hard to uh, figure out what, what is best for a given driver at a bit given track for a given set of conditions. And this car setup can have a massive impact on performance. You can have the fastest driver in the world hands down, that will not be able to go fast at all and will probably go quite slow with a very bad setup. But conversely, you can have a very mediocre, sort of okay driver that might be the fastest car on track with a perfect setup. So as an example, uh, some of you might know the guy on the right in this image. And also the guy on the left, that's Mario Andretti on the left. But the guy on the right, he's famous for salad dressings, he's famous for movies. And he also owned a very, very successful IndyCar team, IndyCar team for a long time. That's Paul Newman, and the team was called Newman Haas. And for, for years, they just won everything, won races, won championships, everything. But they also stayed at the racetrack late every single night in the paddock to like midnight, 2 a.m., all this sort of things, right? And all these other teams were looking at that every night. We, you know, here we are, we're walking out of the racetrack at like 6, 7 p.m., like, okay, done, we'll be here tomorrow to qualify. And then there's Newman Haas, and they're just there, like, practically sleeping at the racetrack, right? And, and so, as a result, a lot of these team owners start to think, well, wait, if they're staying super late all the time, maybe that's where the competitive advantage comes from. Maybe that's what we should be doing. And so that started an unfortunate trend where a bunch of us, me included, <laughs> started working at the track very late at night, just pouring through data over and over, talking to the driver, doing all these things, and then going on the track and still getting our ass kicked by Newman Haas. So clearly, that wasn't the answer. And at the end of the day, even if it was, even if working more hours was the answer, it's not very sustainable, it's inefficient, no one wants to do it, it results in kind of like a horrible work-life balance, right? Um, and there's this great quote by this guy you may have heard of, Thomas Edison, who said famously, there's a way to do it better, find it. So in modern times, people might say that in a little different way, right? They might say, like, work smarter, not harder, or do more with less. But essentially, it's the same, it's the same thing. So then the question becomes, right, how do you work smarter, not harder? How do you do more with less? So in my career in racing, I was determined to work smarter, not harder, and do more with less, and stop working at the racetrack till wee hours in the morning all the time. So I taught myself how to program, how to write code completely from scratch. I did not have a computer science degree at all, but I taught myself how to write code and I combined those skills that I was teaching myself with um, my background in engineering, mathematics, and statistics to start creating custom predictive software tools to help work smarter and not harder. One of those tools that I created at Andretti Autosport, team owned by Michael Andretti, Mario Andretti's son. I ran their vehicle dynamics and data science program, which supported a four-car IndyCar team. Um, I created this tool right here, um, which basically was a time where me and my team were pioneering the use of AI machine learning in professional motorsports across the board, including even Formula One. And at this time, Doing actual track, track testing, like going to a racetrack or going to a wind tunnel or suspension testing was very, very cost prohibitive. And the IndyCar series themselves limited it dramatically. Like you only had so many, three days of track testing a year or something like that. So you were super limited. So um, to get that, the data you really needed to come up with the optimal car race setup was very hard to come by, if not impossible to come by a lot of the time. So. What we did is we created this simulation tool that could run literally tens of thousands of different simulations of a car, different car setups for a given racetrack under different conditions, weather conditions, track conditions, you name it, which would then generate all this data from these tens of thousands of simulations of car 
performance data, like how fast did the car go, and handling data, like was the car scary, safe, like all these things that uh, really impact how a driver can drive a car. And then we were able to use that data to train AI machine learning models to create predictive models that we could just enter any given track set or car configuration or setup and know in advance the outcome for that track and those conditions, how fast the car could go potentially, and um, how the car would feel and handle to the driver. So this is huge, right? Um, we, we became very predictive. We were able to gain the maximum amount of information in the minimal amount of time and effort. And this is truly the definition of creating competitive advantage with data and analytics. And I don't mean to say that to tap myself on the back or anything, but it's hopefully it gives you an idea of what you can do uh, when you work on these things and prioritize these things. Now on the strategy side, unlike the car setup side, the race strategy is all about making gains and winning races, even if you're not that fast. Um, more specifically, race strategy is all about deciding when to pit, how much fuel to put in the car, uh, what tires to put on the car, different tire pressures, how do you coach the driver that's actually on the track going 250 miles an hour with 28 other cars all around them um, on changing settings that they have available to them in the cockpit, things like that, and doing this all on the fly, literally making split-second decisions under intense accountability and pressure. And um, just like I described with car setup, with race strategy, you can have the fastest car and driver, but one bad race strategy call can destroy your race. Vice versa, you can have a pretty mediocre driver and car setup, and through race strategy, win the race, or at least gain a lot of positions during the race. Um, and so in, in a similar way as car setup, again, data and analytics really helps you um, make the difference here, right? So here are a couple of examples of that. So early in my uh, career in racing, we were in Toronto, Canada. Some of you, how many of you guys recognize the, the driver on the screen? Anybody? No? Okay. Uh, this is a guy named Paul Tracy. He was kind of famous back in the day. He's from Canada. He's from Toronto. So this is his home race, his hometown track. He qualifies for this race on pole position. The race starts dominating the race, totally dominating the race, leading the race. And then me and everybody else that's in the pits watch his car slow down and run out of fuel right in front of us on the main straightaway of the track. And then we learned right afterwards that the person responsible for running him out of fuel was fired on the spot, right? And so it's likely because that person did not have the right information at the right time to make the right decision. And in fact, um, that's somewhat understandable back in those days. In those days, race strategy was really done a lot more by like sort of gut feel, it's how we've always done it, or using the software you see here on the screen. So this is the software that every team in IndyCar racing had at the time. Um, it was very limited, it was sort of basic, it focused only on fuel, it wasn't very predictive, it did not um, cover all the scenarios that would come up during an actual race. Um, and plus, everyone had it too, so there's no real competitive advantage there if you have the same tools as everybody else, right? Um, and so while having some information is better than having no information, you can really pay the price, as we've seen, for not having the right information at the right time. As another example, my third race in my career, literally I showed you, you know, testing at Homestead in Miami, literally like six weeks later, my third race in my career is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at the Milwaukee Mile. Some of you may know about that track or have been there. It's a little short oval, it's teeny. Um, and the cars are going almost 200 miles per hour around this teeny one-mile oval. So they do an entire lap every 22 seconds. So you can imagine with, you, with like 20 to 30 cars going around this small oval every 22 seconds, it creates a perfect recipe for a very frantic, hectic, stressful, kind of crazy experience. And I became very quickly overwhelmed during the actual race itself. Uh, I froze up completely, got total analysis paralysis, and basically I was unable to answer any of the questions I was being asked by everyone on the pit stand during the actual race uh, about fuel, about race strategy, about anything, because it was just too much and I didn't have the right information. I was using that software I just showed you. I didn't even, it didn't cover nearly enough scenarios to answer the questions that people had for me. Now, to my credit, this is only my third race ever in the business, and I hadn't even really learned race strategy so much yet. So, 
you know, there's that too. So you have to kind of work your way up to it. But this was a very transformative moment for me because this was the moment that I decided come hell or high water, I'm never going to be caught out again, not having the right information at the right time to make critical decisions on the fly and as needed um, in real time and the confidence. So just like I did with that strategy or the simulation software I showed you before, I combined my coding skills and math and everything else, and I created my own race strategy software that was fully predictive. It covered all the scenarios I needed it to cover. It was, it was updating in real time automatically based on the timing and scoring feed. And from that point on, race strategy was, was really my thing, actually. And I always felt one step ahead of the competition, or, uh, ahead of what was going on, and, you know, was able to really help improve our position and win races with race strategy. And I luckily managed to finish my racing career without running a car out of fuel. And you could do the same in your industry, whatever the equivalent is in corporate real estate. Um, so fast forward a little bit, at that point, at the end of my career in racing, I did 100 races worldwide plus on five continents, won many races and uh, podiums, including winning the historic final champ car race, um, which was a big deal amongst others, and I was really honored to have the privilege to work with all the people you see here on the slide. Uh, the, truly the, the some of the most notable and greatest drivers and team owners in history, and yes, even McDreamy, <laughs> who uh, co-owned an IndyCar team that I worked with. Uh, they hired me to run a car during the Indianapolis 500 one year and do the strategy for that car. Uh, and so in addition to playing a doctor on TV, he did uh, co-own an IndyCar team as well. But after 10 years of, you know, constantly traveling, missing all my summers, missing weddings, you know, you name it, and other life events and things like that, I decided to transition to the tech industry. But my goal was to take everything I learned about data and analytics and trying to build competitive advantage and apply that to the real world, the business world. Um, and I realized there were a lot of parallels between, you know, professional racing and the real, real world. Although, admittedly, the real world moves a little slower than 250 miles per hour. But, so for example, in corporate real estate, this is your track. This is your racetrack right here. These buildings and those workspaces and workplaces is your racetrack. And just like racetracks, they come in different sizes, shapes, layouts, conditions, and so on. And instead of engineers and a pit crew, this is your team, right? Whether it's uh, corporate real estate executives, service providers, product manufacturers and vendors, employees in the business, whatever it is. And instead of a driver, you have your own customers and employees in corporate real estate. And in racing, the, the team's job, right, is to make the driver go as fast as possible, as safely as possible, and win. And your job in corporate real estate, depending on what you do, is to do the same thing for your customers and your employees, to help them win in some way, right? So what usually it's something to do with like finding and creating the perfect workplace for them. So maybe you are already thinking about your data and analytics strategy and like you know it's on your radar, you're already thinking, well, what can we be doing? What can we do that's different? Maybe you're already on that journey and I saw by a show of hands some of you are and maybe some of you are doing more of the AI and machine learning, the more advanced stuff. Um, but the key is to keep advancing in your data and analytics journey and finding new ways. I've had to do this throughout my career as I've shown you today, um, and the payoff was well worth it. And really more and more there's no choice uh, to kind of stay competitive and get ahead, honestly, as, as we are seeing as we live in a more data analytics and technology driven world. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that you should go, you need to go out and build software like I did or have all this expertise in mathematics or anything, right? It's whether you do it yourself or whether other people within your organization can do it internally or you find help from the outside, it doesn't matter. It's just more of a point of, of really um, getting to this, which is your winning recipe, right? Prioritizing data analytics maturity to optimize your car setup and your race strategy. So what does that mean? In corporate real estate, so in racing, car setup was all the static configurations, like your aerodynamic configuration, your... Um, your uh, suspension configurations and so on. In corporate real estate, your static configurations are probably around your organization. 
like your employees, your organizational structure, your processes, all these things that maybe you can optimize, your products and services or whatever your offerings are. Your race strategy in corporate real estate is how do you have the right information at the right time on the fly, just like during a race, right? Like when you're working with your customers, when you're working with your employees or within your own organization, stakeholders that you're working with, so that you can answer questions and have the insights you need as they come up, right? So you're not caught off guard. And some companies are, you know, this isn't, uh, this is your industry much more than my industry, but after looking into this a bit, some companies are certainly uh, doing some pretty interesting things in the corporate real estate uh, space using this winning recipe, as you can see here on the screen. So these are some real world AI use cases and scenarios that companies in corporate real estate are already starting to apply this, whether it's in lease administration, property management, um, market research and analysis, personalized real-time listings, uh, listing updates for you know, your customers, tenants, uh, potential tenants, and so on. And whether you're, you know, again, a corporate real estate executive or a service provider or product manufacturer, you know, when we think back to that Thomas Edison quote, it's all about finding your better way. Because if you do, that helps you minimize or eliminate uncertainties and risk, improve efficiency, be able to move faster, have the answers you need when you need them, make smarter, better, and more confident decisions, which is important, and then provide, you know, again, truly differentiated and best-in-class products and services. Things that, you know, when you're talking to potential customers, they see it and they go, yes. Yeah, no, you guys are doing that. No one else I'm talking to is doing that. And if you do that, that helps you enjoy your new reality, which hopefully helps you land more sales and beat the competition, things like that, operate more efficiently, so saving more time, more money, uh, things like that as well. Get the employees you've been wanting to get, attract and hire those employees and, and keep them as well. Uh, keep long-term customers happy. That, that also help drive sales. That's important, by the way. Um, when you do things right, you can have customers that become sort of brand ambassadors for you, kind of evangelists, right? And that becomes a bit of a force multiplier. So for every one customer, you can maybe actually get more like 1.5 customers through that, you know, uh, these fans of your, your company. And that means your ROI from a financial perspective, that means your ROI on investment in every customer is actually multiplied by that force multiplier because you spend a certain amount, instead of getting just one customer, you might get 1.5 customers on average, things like that, and so on. And if you do all these things and kind of prioritize these things like we've talked about, ultimately the goal is that you're able to build competitive advantage, which will help you get ahead, stay ahead, and win. Put your competition in your rearview mirror and enjoy racing, enjoy your race like this guy, and hopefully this will play, we'll see. Of the Indianapolis 500 is one, Pablo Montoya. And with that, thank you very much. I think we're uh, going to take some questions. I, also, let me just see if I could play that one video as well, because it is really cool. Uh, hold on one sec. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, this one. Let's see. Lester Jr. has the lead. One more turn to go. Here they come. Coming to the finish line. Bob Jenkins, who's going to win it? The checkered flag is out. Goodyear makes a move. Little Al wins by just a few tenths of a second. Perhaps the closest finish in the history of the Indianapolis 500. And what's so interesting, I was sitting in turn one on the inside. When they came around, Scott Goodyear was actually in front of Little Al. So we all thought, we actually thought that Al, Little Al Jr. had lost the race and Goodyear won. But in fact, he didn't. But that, anyway, figured I'd show you that. So. Thank you again. Any questions or things you'd like to discuss? Thank you for the presentation. Super interesting and super great to hear about other industries other than CRE and you know finding similarities and parallels. One question that I had is, um, 
especially for companies that are not on this journey yet in regards to either being data-driven or leveraging AI. Um, it sometimes seems like a laborious process to make the upfront investment yep. to be able to, you know, turn all these processes to be data and AI driven. Can you give some tips and tricks as to how to generate buy-in? I mean, obviously there's case studies shown again and again that this works, but specifically for the CRE community, can you share a couple of those tips? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Something that I come across often. Um, the thing is, is the more specific, the more concrete, always the better. Um, when you talk about things at a high level, oh, hey, we're going to optimize stuff or we're going to like, you know, be able to predict something. I mean, it sounds great. It does. But, you know, there, there's often a gap because if people aren't as familiar with what you truly can do, what are those use cases, it's hard to bridge that gap and, and put uh, pinpoint what exactly it is. So it's very helpful, a, a couple of things. One is, it's very helpful to identify what the specific concrete things are that you could do with AI and machine learning in your specific organization. But also that's goal aligned. So, you know, if let's say every company has a bunch of different goals, right? They always do. But some are like very top level, like immediate top level we got to get this figured out tomorrow kind of stuff. And some are like on the goals list, but they're not as immediate, right? So normally it's really important to try and um, focus on the biggest goals, the biggest challenges at hand, uh, the biggest needs, and try and figure out what those use cases are specifically that, that achieve the, help you achieve those goals. Um, it's hard to say specific ones right now just because I don't know your business or a lot specifically what, what those goals might be. The other thing too is also to, to start as small as you can and prove out ROI as quickly as you can. So one of the things that happens, I don't know if some of you have this issue today, but one of the things that I see all the time is companies prioritize their data foundation. Remember that maturity diagram I showed earlier? And they're just like, they got to have the data. It's all about the data. We got to build a data warehouse and a data lake and a, you know, all this stuff. And, what, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But what's wrong with that approach to it is if you focus entirely on just building a lot of data, what happens is it can take a long time to build a very sort of comprehensive data warehouse or data lake that can become useful for what I would call efficient analytics, right? So not only can it take a long time, it could cost a lot of money and require a lot of resources. And what winds up happening is then buy-in, when you talk about adoption, buy-in, all that, is stakeholders and like C-suite folks and all this stuff, it starts to look like a, a big sunk cost, right? It starts to look like, oh, we're spending all this money, we're building this data thing, what are we doing with it? It's like, yeah, but we're just still building this data thing. It's going to take only like six more months and so many more dollars. It's like, yeah, but what are we doing with it? When's it going to generate a return on the investment? So again, I'm not saying you wouldn't want to do that, but what I am saying is in parallel to that, you also want to find like little wins, right? Like little small use cases that are much easier to do. They don't require a massive data lake or warehouse, and you can... Um, you know, put some, hire, if you have data scientists or you can find some from the outside, you know, get them in there working on a specific problem with a smaller data set, uh, like a curated specialized data set, prove out a concept, and then you could go to those folks and say, look, we just built this thing. Let's say you're in email marketing, for example. I used to work for Barnes & Noble, or not for, but uh, with Barnes & Noble College. Uh, and in their case, they have 850 uh, real estate, or sorry, brick-and-mortar stores around the country, right? Uh, college, university bookstores. And they do a lot of email marketing, just like many companies. Well, if you could go in and say, hey, if we do some AI stuff to personalize each email and, and, and group the emails to specific, um, instead of sending the same email to everybody, you send specific emails to certain groups that will resonate more with them. If we can increase the click-through rate and the purchase rate by only 4%, that could be millions of dollars in revenue, right? And then if you could do it and show it, you know, now you've got a big win with something very small, relatively small, right? And then once people see that ROI and see there's something there, it's a lot easier to sell from there and kind of advance and go. Hopefully, that was a long-winded answer, but hopefully that was helpful. Um, other questions? Yes. 
So in in the one slide that you showed before the maturity, you had like Excel and BI, and it sort of went down to AI, and you you know, showed the custom softwares that you had developed for a company that's um, you know starting down the AI path. Is there off-the-shelf kind of AI software like that, or do you have to hire ah. an expert in in your field, or what? You know, how do you start it from that perspective? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So. Um, all of the above is the is the short answer. So there's a how many of you guys show of hands have heard of this like low code no code phenomenon that's happening right now? Some people, okay. Um, so in the low code no code code area, you know people are trying to automate writing software because not everybody you know for a good while there it was really hard to find software developers, right? Um, they were in demand. There was much more need for them than there were people doing it. Now there's a lot more people graduating from computer science degrees and that build software. But what, what wound up happening is like everybody realized they wanted to democratize, make it a lot easier and more accessible to build complicated software without everyone having to be a computer scientist or a software developer or engineer. So this created the, the this sparked this generation of what they call no code, low code tools that like how many of you have heard of like Squarespace or Wix for building websites? That's a great example. You know, before you used to have to hire a WordPress developer or even before WordPress, something much more complex, spend a ton of money. Now anyone could go just throw a website together. So they're doing that now with AI and ML. There's a thing called ML Ops. There's AI Ops. Um, there's different kinds of platforms that are starting to, uh, if you have a data set, you can kind of automatically cluster your data, you can try and do predictive analytics with that data and things like that. It's not, unlike in the software side, in the, in the advanced analytics side, it's still not there yet um, at all, and it does require some amount of uh, more technical expertise. One of the challenges, and that's something I'm really trying to solve right now, actually, with my company, YFAI, and the things I do at Northwestern and everywhere else, is trying to democratize what I would call AI literacy and help people understand these things in a simpler way. Because as much as we'd like it to be simple, unfortunately, AI and machine learning are very technical, complex fields that are based in some pretty hardcore mathematics, statistics, computer science, all this stuff. But in the end, those, those really like technical details aren't so important. What is important is what can you do with it? What are the benefits? What are the real world outcomes and results? Um, and how do you explain that to people that need to understand those things? Um, but yeah, to, to your point, there are tools that more and more, there's some APIs, there's some cloud-based tools that people can use. I don't know if there's specifically uh, something in the corporate real estate world um, in different areas of that, like a platform that helps you know, automatically do some of these things um, as long as you provide data. If not, that could be a good product opportunity, but, um, but yeah. Um, and then sometimes it's as simple as hiring a data scientist or machine learning engineer or something like that that could just get their hands dirty with the data and start building and training and optimizing predictive models and things like that. Any other questions? Still got a few minutes, I think. Yes. Myself up uh, out there, like on a stage with with a scientist, where I'm not a scientist. Uh, so, no worries. Uh, but uh, just a high level thought. So the racing would that be more physics, and what we're after would not be physics, or is it still physics with the type of math that would be involved in the analytics that we're interested in? Well, is it two different worlds of solving? Or is it the same formula path, uh, or is it like two different languages? No, that's a. I, I love that question. It's that's an interesting one. So the the similarities are are things like data and analytics and mapping data and 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 inputs and whatever data you can get your hands on to some outcomes. Really, so outcomes of events are, that you're very tracking similar. in real estate. It doesn't matter that it's a ball hitting a wall or a tire screeching on a on a surface. Right. That you're measuring and looking at the best combination of ingredients to get a better result. 
Yes, exactly. Right. In this case, the science might be different, right? So like in, in racing, to your point, that's a good point. You have material science, you have physics, chemistry, thermodynamics, different things. I don't know in, in the workplace arena or corporate real estate how much you're dealing with the physics of, of spaces. But that being said, I know like there's examples of AI right now that are saving companies massive, um, massive, massive like uh, property management bills and utility bills and things like that by automating, using sensors and, and AI models to like predict certain like internal temperatures and when the HVAC system should turn on, when it should sleep, like automating all those things and you could get huge returns on cooling bills or heating bills or whatever. Occupancy use we currently have, we measure yeah. that with uh, machines basically. Yep. And if people are in the office or not, so you could track your use and say so you're not using it, so you could use less space, consolidate it down, blah, blah, blah. So exactly. And, and maybe you can optimize space certain ways. So there's some area, there's some, in the retail industry, there's um, applications of computer vision, where, how many of you have been to an Amazon Go store? It's pretty wild, right? Like it's, it, you know, uh, for those of you that don't know about it, it's a, uh, basically like a registerless store. You just go in, you grab whatever you want. You can put it in your pockets, you can put it in your backpack, and then you just walk right out. And it really makes you feel like you're shoplifting, quite honestly, because like I was, I was, you know, obviously raised like not to go in stores and start putting everything in my pocket. But that, there it's okay because the, the AI systems they have are so advanced, they use what's called sensor fusion, which combines multiple different things. They have computer vision from cameras, they have proximity sensors, so they have things that are measuring how close you are to shelves and specific products, and they have scales underneath each shelf. So when you pull something like a bag of chips off a shelf, they have three different data points saying that you were the one that pulled the bag of chips off the shelf. One is a, a camera that sees you doing it. The other is the weight gets reduced for that bag of chips. And the other is you happen to be very closer than anybody else in the store to that thing from the proximity so it knows to charge you for that even though you put it in your pocket and you walk right out and you don't see a register. In, in an office space, in a workspace, um, you can do probably similar things to some extent. And also in retail, what they, some people will do is they'll have cameras, the same cameras they use for loss prevention, right? You need cameras because people unfortunately do steal stuff, so you have to kind of watch people. But what, what you can also do is see how people move around the store and where they spend the most time, which paths they tend to take, things like that. And then you, it helps certain companies move things to, like, things they need to be in the higher traffic areas or where people stand more often or which things are the most interesting, you know, in terms of how they look or whatever it is. So in the workplace, there may be similar applications. Like how do you optimize your workplace in different ways like that? Obviously there's other considerations around privacy and um, things like that too, which are part of AI and you hear more and more about, and those should be considered in terms of like facial re recognition and all that stuff. But yep, other? Other questions? Anything else? Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all for joining thank us today. Thank you, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy New Year if I don't see you.